Okay, Revelation chapter 8. We're going to stick to the same structure. I'll just read through the, the, the chapter. If anything, if you have any notes that you want to ask before we go through it, I'm going to go um, fairly verse by verse. There's a few that I'm going to group together because of the, the way that it's, it's kind of listed out here. Um, but for the most part, um, we're going to go uh, seemingly verse by verse. Verse number one. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Um, in case you don't remember, uh, chapter 6, they opened the first six seals. Chapter 7 was kind of a break from that last seal, from the seventh seal. And now chapter 8, uh, we are opening up the very last seal to display what's inside. And everyone seems to be pretty excited about that um, until maybe it's open. <laughs> but we're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, verse number two. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God. These seven angels are assumed to be the same seven angels as the churches from the original chapters that we read um, before. And to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense. Uh, that he could offer it with, um, that he should offer it with the uh, prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And, and in case you don't know what a censer is, a censer is kind of like the like a like a staff that has like it carries stuff in, on it. Um, so it's got like a, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, I probably have to get a picture or something, which I you can you can Google search it. But um, it basically this angel is just holding like a like a staff to to carry. Um, the, the incense and the prayers of the saints. Um, verse number four, and the, and the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of trees was burnt up, and all grass, green grass, was burnt up. Verse 8, And the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain, burning with fire, was cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures, which were in the sea and had life, died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. Verse 10, And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon uh, the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. Verse 11, And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. Any questions before we get into this? Anything to note? Maybe. I don't. I don't know. I would. Let, if if there is a question, now's the time to ask it, and I'll let you know if I'm going to explain it or not. <laughs> I'm sure you're going to explain it. We'll find out. 
What 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 question you have? I don't have one. I'm just oh. saying that when you read it again, because you're gonna go through it again, I might pop up a question then. Okay, chapter eight. I know that going through Revelation can often, most of the time, at least from the last few chapters, in on my own opinion, can leave us um, feeling overburdened by the coming events. If what John wrote in this book is true, and this is something that will come in the future, and that it's supposed to come um, towards the end of all of humanity and all of Earth as we know it, what are we going to do to prepare? What are we supposed to do to get ready for that? And we're going to see a lot of chaos and destruction occurring in the next few chapters as God begins to unfurl chaos on the earth towards those that are not his children. But those that are saved, as we recognized in the last chapter, last time we, we went through this, are safe from the wrath to come. So no matter what God hurls at the earth, if, if you are in the family of the Lord, you need not worry about these things. But no doubt... We know people who aren't in the Lord's family that must be warned about the things to come. Uh, judging by COVID and everything that's happening currently, this is a small picture of what is what is to come. And this is a big picture to us, right, living through it, right? We, we feel like this is never ending and it's just getting worse as time progresses. But this is, this is small compared to what we're about to open up. Um, and even this is just the start in this chapter. This is just the start, the start, um, and this is the small part of it. Um, but um, we need to warn those that that, are, that don't have that don't have God, and, and the things to come will look exactly like what is being pictured here in this chapter. We also know and understand that even if God's uh, children are still on Earth during this time of tribulation, which which uh, I don't believe to be the case, and and I'll, and I'll explain why that is in a moment. Um, but if, if that is the case, then we see some important key factors as to why his children will still live in freedom and uh, um, com comfort. Uh, I, use that, I use that term comfort loosely because you can never be comfortable in this world. Um, this is not our home. We are pilgrims passing through on our way to a far better land, a far better home. First Peter 2.11, Peter says, Dear the beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm pleading with you as people that don't belong here, is what he's saying. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Um, because you don't belong here, you don't have to live like everyone else that does belong here. And, and there are people that belong here, sadly, um, just because they, that's what they want. They, they, love, they love the earth. They love this place. They could find nothing better in the future. So this is where they'll be until they die. And then... They'll be into so. I mean, eventually you're gonna lose it. Sure, you could love, you could love your family, but loving the earth, loving like, it, for instance. That's usually why people don't want to die is because they don't want to leave their loved ones. If you love your family more than you love Christ, you'll never have Christ. It's impossible to love anything love more your, than Christ. You can love your family. You can love your. You can love Christ more than your family, but still not want to leave your family. Sure, you don't want to. I, like, <laughs> I, I love Eva, and I couldn't picture, and I, you know, obviously when we, when we go to heaven, we're not going to be married anymore because we're married to, to God. That's what the Bible. That's what the Bible says. We we are His bride. Um, he's the husbandman. So when we leave this earth, it, that, you know, when we made vows to each other, one of those vows was until death do us part, and death will part us. And because of that, we will no longer be married when we're in heaven. Um, so 
when we get to heaven, we're not going to be married, but that doesn't mean I don't love Eva still. You know, I love Christ, but I love Eva just, just the same. You know, I love him. I love her because I, I live with her and because I don't want a life without her. Um, and the same, same instance with, with Christ. I love Christ because I live with him and I don't want a life without him. Um, but there will be a time when I'm separated from, from Eva. There will not be a time when I'm separated from Christ, um, which is why we should love him more <laughs> because he is our eternity. Without him, we can do nothing. Without Eva, uh, I, can still, I can still function. I can still live and I can still go to heaven. <laughs> but it, um, it does make a difference to have people here that you care about uh, while you're passing through because they'll be in heaven too. Um, even though we won't be married, I'll still see her. I'll still be there with her. You know, I'll still love her. Just won't be married to her. So, honestly, if we go to heaven, the only people I'd probably hang out with is people I know. So, <laughs> no, I, I probably, I probably wouldn't hang out with like, you know, the Apostle Paul and people like that. At least not at first. Uh, again, I'd probably hang. I would probably spend more time with Eva than I would with with people that I was related to, and I don't really know, you know, just because I know Eva. You know, <laughs> I know Eva, but that doesn't mean we won't get to know them. I mean, I'd probably talk to him or something like Moody. I, I'd be excited to see Moody, but again, I probably wouldn't hang out with him as often as I would hang out with with Eva. And same thing with him. He probably wouldn't hang out with with his wife Emma as as much as he'd hang out with. I mean, with uh, with me, then as much as he hang out with Emma or with um, Christ specifically. But everyone's going to be wanting to spend time with Christ, so that's going to be a um, an interesting situation that's not the point the point is uh we we won't have to worry about what what happens to this world because we're just strangers and we're just pilgrims passing through and, and we don't belong here we belong in heaven once we are saved one uh someone once coins the term home is where the heart is and if we're christians uh, we understand our hearts are evil and wicked <laughs> to, the, to the Lord. In Jeremiah 17, 9, he says it himself, the heart is deceitful. It means it tricks you. It makes you think the things that you don't actually want, but it makes you believe that you want them. It's deceitful above all things. Everything in this world, your heart is more deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But because we are Christians, we are the only people in the universe who have the capability to set or place our hearts on something else and turn it from our wickedness to God's righteousness. We are the only ones that can do that if we know God. Uh, those that don't know God can't change their heart. Their heart will always be the same because they don't know how to change it. They can't change it. Only God can change people's hearts. Um, in fact, David is referenced as a man, and I don't have this as my, in my notes, but David is referenced as a man um, after God's own heart. That's, that's a bold statement to be referenced as the man after god's heart um and it wasn't because you know his heart was was sinful and wicked it was because he wanted god's heart he wanted his heart to be like god's um and so that's why he went after god's heart and, and we should be you know labeled the same we should be going after god's heart because we know our heart is wicked uh, but we have that opportunity in colossians 3 verses 2 through 4 it says set your affection on things above 
not on things on the earth. For you're dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, that's his second coming, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So when we set our affections on things above, we don't have to worry about um, when he comes again, because we know that our heart belongs to him. Um, it's befitting, isn't it, though, that Paul tells us to look forward to the day in which Christ returns. He reminds us to look up and anticipate it, wait for it, watch for it. God wants us to wait and watch and look forward to Jesus' coming. And then I recommend that we should. We shouldn't, we shouldn't put it aside and say, you know, you know, I have till tomorrow. I can just, you know, I can worry about Christ's coming tomorrow. Um, I, I, you know, I could live, I could do this today. I can have... I could just get drunk tonight and feel okay tomorrow because it's just, you know, one more day. And Christ, what are the chances that Christ is going to come tomorrow? Uh, what, are the, what are the chances that we're going to be called up into eternity? But while we are waiting and expecting this to happen, it keeps our mind off of our fleshly desires and onto his specific purpose and plans for our lives. Matthew 24, 44 says, Therefore, this is Jesus speaking, Be also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. When you're not thinking it, when you're not plant prepared for it, he's going to come. In Luke 12, 40, be therefore ready also for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. Paul understood this uh, uh, as well in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Watch, be prepared. Luke 21, 26, men's heart failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, waiting for those things here, expecting them. Uh, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your, redre- your redemption draweth nigh. When, when the world seems like it's starting to fall apart, that's when we need to look up. And I don't know if you've been living lately, but things seem to be falling apart pretty rapidly. But this is the time we should be looking up. But did you catch that last one? When these things begin... To come to pass it is well understood that we should look forward to the lord's return as soon as the tribulation starts but it is more important and prudent and wise of us to look forward to it now to look forward to it before it even happens and i can honestly say and i and i haven't been on this earth for very long uh, but the older i get and the longer i'm here the worse the earth has become the more things seem to just that fall apart <laughs> the, the worse things become people continually push the line of accessibility uh, or acceptability each and every day. When I, when I was a kid, the idea and thought of older people having relationships with younger, underage people was an absurd concept. It was disgusting. It was something that nobody would ever... You you think that's okay? You think that's acceptable? No, that, those people would be thrown in jail. That, that was our mindset. Uh, it gave you a feeling of hatred and resentment towards someone that could even think that way. But... Our world has slowly started to accept the idea. And I don't think we are too far behind from allowing it in our society. I, I Honestly, I truly believe there's going to be a, a day, even in my own life, uh, where pedophilia is going to be acceptable. Because you can't say love is love and stand, for up, stand up for equality without allowing love for pedophiles. Uh, or, or equality for bestiality or necrophilia. 
we keep pushing lines and then and then keep accepting new things keep accepting those those boundaries you know the, the boundary was set here but now let's push it to, to this and, and that's, so this will be acceptable because there's people that like this satan is good at, at getting us used to sin that goes directly against what god wants as long as it makes us feel good who cares and the truth of the matter is nobody really does but god cares and that's why we must take a look at here what's happening and and i believe it's it's why these things are more than evidently going to come to pass on our earth we have already started to push those lines in that direction we we are the generation that is moving forward with the end of times further proving the authenticity of the bible matthew 24 37 says but as the days of noah were so shall also the coming of the son of man be it will happen quickly and none of us will be prepared for it matthew 24 28 Jesus continues, says, For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. They were living their lives. They were just doing what the, whatever pleased themselves. And then the day that Noah entered in and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Just as those days were, everyone's living their lives, suddenly Jesus returns. But instead of us cowering in fear, it should give us hope and encouragement. And it should encourage us to stand more strongly on our faith, allowing him to guide our motives into to warning others about the things uh, that are supposed to come. And these things that are depicted here um, in these coming chapters. So let's keep that in mind while we're reading through this chapter. Verse number one, it says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. Keeping people silent. For less than uh, 10 minutes is an impossible feat in of itself. Even, even if, you, if there were like 20 people in there um, and, and, and those people were told to be silent or even if they weren't told to be silent, they were just excited about something, there would no doubt be someone either coughing or laughing, uh, thinking about something else that has nothing to do with being silent, huh? Snoring. <laughs> Snoring, maybe falling asleep. Maybe whispering to somebody else about something that has nothing to do with what's going on. Um, but this has multitudes of people, as we read in the last chapter, sitting, waiting, patiently, as this last seal is opened. They, they longed for this moment. Um, they, they are anticipating what is to come next. And they have seen so much already. What more could this one seal hold? It says they waited for a half an hour. This was too exciting not to wait for. Anything the Lord is planning on doing is worth waiting for. It's, it's worth having the patience for. In Psalms 24, or 27, 14, uh, David said, Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Uh, referencing once again that anything that is worth waiting for is always going to be from the Lord. Uh, too many of us miss the moving of God because we grow so, so impatient in waiting on him but we know that the waiting period will be worth it and in this chapter it is no different in romans 12 12 it says rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation continuing instant in prayer patience and rejoicing in hope and the prayer is what we need to be experiencing if we want to see god meet with us in whatever needs we see but then verse 2 says and i saw the seven angels which stood before god and to them were given seven trumpets so God, for some reason, 
which we'll find out why in a minute, but for some reason, seemingly just gives them seven trumpets, seven musical instruments. Every single angel has a trumpet. Everything starts to come alive at this moment. Trumpets don't seem like much, but they are a great indicator to the start of the ultimate tribulation. Uh, many believe that the trumpets will symbolize the rapture. Um, this is when some people have acclaimed that this is when the rapture will take place. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 1 Corinthians 15.52, In a moment, Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So, uh, a lot of people believe that when Paul said that, that meant the very last trumpet, which there's seven, the very last trumpet is when the rapture will take place, um, which I don't believe to be true, and uh, we'll explain that in a minute, but um, some people do believe that. But we also understand that nobody knows when the rapture will take place, and this is why I don't believe that that's true, that the, it will be the last trumpet. Mark 13, 32, as we've already read before, but Jesus says, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man. No, not the, the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch, and pray, for ye know not what the time is. That's the exciting part to me. We don't know. And this is why we must always be ready, waiting and watching, praying constantly. It's even commanded to us to watch by Jesus himself. Uh, watching and waiting is not just a suggestion. It's, it's a command. He says, watch and pray. Verse number three, it says, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. I don't know if you've ever used incense before. Um, yeah. It's strong. It's insanely strong. Uh, do, you, do you like it? I don't like it either. Uh, there's some people that do, uh, and I, I think they use it in like weed shops and stuff like Sometimes that. Sometimes it smells good before you burn it. You burn yeah, it. yeah, it's, it, it like changes it to like a smoky. It's just too, it's just so strong. And and if it's a smaller room, especially, it's like it's the worst. You're like gagging. You're like almost dying. Um, so he's using incense here as a, as a depiction of of the saint, the prayers of the saints. Uh, we see that we see the angel literally offer up the prayers to the Lord with incense, and I believe this symbolizes a few things. Number one, in the Old Testament sanctuaries, uh, the priests had two altars. One was for the sacrifice of the animals for the, the sins of the people, and the second altar was for incense, which was near the holy place. In in Exodus twenty-seven verses one through eight, it gives the description, and Exodus chapter thirty verses one through ten. I'm not going to read through them because that's that's a lot to read. But if you want to write those down. Um, you can read them later, and it just gives it gives a, a kind of a depiction of what those altars were for, how they looked, how they were built, the materials they used to build them, and all that kind of stuff. But John sees only one altar in heaven fulfilling both functions. In verse four, number four, it says, "And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand." The incense, even during the Old Testament, represented the prayers of the saints. In Psalm uh, chapter 141 and verse 2, David says, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. In other words, as just like the smoke comes up into, his, into your nostrils, that's what the, our prayers 
that's what David wanted our prayers to his prayers to be like specifically. He wanted his prayers to be just like that, like incense going up to the Lord. And he's smelling it and he's excited about it and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. I also believe that the, that's the second reason. The incense gave the prayers a sweet smelling savor to God. When we think of it this way, we see that God's senses are pleased by things that are specifically lenient on him. He's pleased when we come to him like this. He, he, he sees it as a sweet-smelling savior. This even depicts the sacrifice of his own son on the cross, for it was the altar in which all sin was forgiven forever. And he says this, and Paul says this in Ephesians 5 too, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savior. Just in the same sense as our prayers are sweet-smelling to God, and he loves that, and he, he wants that, he desires that, so is our, our trust and our faith in Jesus, Christ's, in Jesus Christ's sacrifice. But then these prayers mixed with the fire from the altar, the, the one in which held the prayers and sacrifices of the saints of God. They're taken, put into the censer, and then are then flung to earth, <laughs> it, it, literally, in answer to the saint's prayer. In verse number five, it says, And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire on the, of the altar, and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And we'll get more into that in a second. But in case you don't remember, chapter six is prayer. Uh, Revelation 6.10, the saints are under the altar. Um, they were sacrificed for God. And this is the saint's prayer. It says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long? O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? How long is it going to take before you take vengeance? God is now answering the prayers of the martyred saints on the altar, which gives the understanding and conclusion of its existence. Their sacrifice was to fulfill the time of God's waiting so that his wrath will be poured out on those that have still continued to disobey and have turned the earth into a nightmare to even live on. Um, verse 6 says, And the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. They were ready. <laughs> they were waiting. The angels were, were ready to start this, and this is the time in which the war would commence. This is the time in which everything's going to, to end. This is when things begin to get serious, and the earth will look for a solution to stopping God's plan, which they will find, spoiler alert, <laughs> in uh, Satan in the chapters to come. But these angels were ready, and God already knew the full outcome of this war that was about to commence. He, honestly, didn't even have to know. He didn't have to know when when uh, when to, when these things were were, were ready. He, he could be. I mean, he would he would still win. <laughs> no matter what happened, he would still win because he's he's God. It, it's funny to me when people argue with the Bible. They, 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 they say, you know, and it gives even further reverence to the fact that, that Satan will ultimately deceive them and they'll believe that he's, he is the ultimate God because, because they argue with the Bible. They argue with, with God as it is. Uh, they, they're always proven wrong and then they, they, they look dumb for fighting with God to begin with, which is a great reminder to us, by the way, when someone is angry with you or with us because we are quoting God's word, uh, and we're, we're using God as, as our ultimate authority. When they're angry with you, it's not that they're angry with you. They're angry with, with him, and they're just taking it out on you. Though it may seem like it's 
it's something that they're personal, but it, it, it's really not. They just, they're arguing with God and they look small when they, when they do that. Verse number seven says, the first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood and they were cast upon the earth and the third part of trees were burnt up and all green grass was burnt up. These coming trials are interestingly familiar. In fact, this same type of trial, the same exact thing, hail and fire mixed with blood, is found in the seventh plague of Egypt when Moses is trying to free God's people to go worship him. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 24, it says, So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous, such as there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. It, God has already done this once before. He didn't destroy the entire earth, and he's still not going to destroy the entire earth here, um, which we'll, we'll read more in a second. But he's he's already done this, so why would he not be able to do, do it once again? History has already proven it. Granted, this will be for a different cause and time, but it, it just goes to show that the, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New, and he will be the same at the end of the world as well. And that's how we know we can trust him because he is always faithful. He will always do what he needs to do. Verses eight and nine says, and the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. Once again, the sea becoming blood also represents a type of, of plague in the story of Moses as well. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over that because we're going to read another part of that again. But this seemingly also echoes something from the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 51, verse 25, it says, Behold, I'm against thee, O destroying mountain, saith the Lord, which destroyed, uh, destroyest all the earth. And I will stretch out mine hand upon thee and roll thee down from the rocks and will make thee a burnt mountain. And then verse 42, it says, The sea has come up upon Babylon, and she is covered with the multitude of the waves thereof. Mind you, if, if God is has done these things before it should not be surprising to us if he's able to do them again at the end of the world in fact we should we should expect the, the fact that he is able to do those things we are always often dumbfounded by miracles all the time yet we know that god has always performed miracles and and historically has proven that and he will always do them with or without our belief he does what he knows is right he does what is right not just what he knows is right, because there's nothing he can do that's wrong. In verses 10 through 11, it says, And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of water. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Wormwood, in case you don't know, um, is, a, is a real plant. It's a bitter-tasting plant with a poisonous extract. That's, that's what it is. Um, so it is is poisonous. You can't eat it. I mean, you probably could use it in, in medicinally, um, but it would be real dangerous. <laughs> so you'd have to figure out how to dilute it in some source, some way. Um, but it, it's it's a real plant. It's something that you can you can actually um, eat, eat for yourself if you want to. <laughs> it exists. Yeah, but they'll probably use it for wrong reasons. Probably. The same thing with marijuana and all sorts of different kinds of things. So they use cocaine for wrong reasons. Those are all things that could be used for the right reasons. There are drugs that could be used for right reasons, but most people don't use them for the right reasons. They abuse them. But apparently a star 
with these same kind of, of attributes and qualities will make a, a, a third part of the rivers and springs completely undrinkable, almost exactly like the Nile when Moses turns it into blood. In Exodus 7, 24, it says, And all the Egyptians digged round about the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river, because Moses turned it all into blood. <laughs> it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't sustainable. Um, and so they had to try and, and, and dig around that. There's a, there was a show, and I've used this reference before, but there was a show um, when I was younger. I, for, um, I forget when it came out. Um, but it was called How, How the States Got Their Shape. And basically, it shows the picture of America... And every every state has like a different shape. Like they're all like, some of them have like perfect lines or squares, and some of them are you know zigzagged and and, and kind of like crooked and weird. And Florida's just like kind of like a like a foot. But I guess the point of of it was to show how these states got their shape. And the way they were shaped was because every single state touched a body or a land of water. So all of those lines and stuff, those are all the waters dividing the states. Um, so that's how the states got got their shape. They were all touching water. Usually when a city was under attack, especially in the Old Testament, and even most of the time today, they would surrender when their water supply was polluted or cut off because that was their main source of living. How else were they going to survive without water? So if, they, if the enemy could cut your water supply off, you don't have a choice. You either surrender or you die. Those are your two two options. And you could live without many things in this life, but water is probably the most the most needful. Second Kings twenty twenty gives us a depiction. It says, And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, now he made a pool and a conduit and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Or Second Chronicles thirty two thirty. This same Hezekiah also stopped the upper water course of uh, Gihon and brought it straight down to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all his works. And then Psalm 46.4, uh, David says, There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. Water is an extremely important resource um, to cities, but here God is cutting them off. He's making it impossible for them to even survive and drink from. Verse 12, it says, And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them were, was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. Yet again, this mimics the same as the ninth plague of Egypt during the time when Moses was trying to free God's people. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Some scholars believe that this may take place around the same time as the sixth seal, uh, which, which we read about prior in, in chapter 6, um, which if you don't remember, it's, uh, verse 13, it says, And the stars of heaven fell upon the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. So this uh, trumpet, the fourth trumpet, uh, is supposedly supposed to take place around when the sixth seal was open in that same um, area or same time. Um, some also believe that the sky will be darkened because of all the smoke from the burning cities once the stars fall and a third of the earth is completely left 
completely useless. Um, and then verse 13, it says, And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. Yet again, leaving us on a very low note without the last three seals, uh, an angel prepares us for what is about to happen next without revealing the details. It seems these first four trumpets were to reveal the earth's hopelessness, uh, God forcing them to be literally backed in a corner with nowhere to go. Uh, they're going to face the judgment. It, it seemingly looks impossible to survive on this earth at this point. What are you going to do? The third part of the earth is, is completely completely without any kind of form of survival. But the angel says, Woe, woe, woe. Which indicates that the last three trumpets are one for each woe. And they are, which I'll get into in the next chapter. But um, even still, there are some key factors that God is brushing over and hasn't revealed yet that will cause all of this to become as bad as it seems. It's not just God angry because the people have sinned against him. It's worse than that. See, it is possible to sin against God. We do understand that. David realized, realized that when he, he sleeps with someone else's wife and then kills her husband. And he feels guilty and prays to God. And in Psalm 51.4, he says, Against thee, thee only. Have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest? In other words, whatever you do to me, Lord, you have the right to do to me because I have only sinned against you. But he also sinned against this other woman in which he killed her husband over. Uh, I'm sure there was a time where he might have apologized to her. It's not written down anywhere. Uh, but it's, it's far worse to sin against God than it is to sin against others. However, God is not pleased when we are doing evil and wicked things against other people. It's, it's because of this and the fact that, that we sin against God combined that God's judgment must be executed. Bad things must happen. Uh, we, we look to Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis chapter 18, verses 23 to 32. I, I love this um, particular verse. It says, And Abraham drew near, because Abraham knew that somebody lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, he was a family member, didn't want him to don't want them to die. Um, so Abraham went to God and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Because in other words, I have family there. Are you gonna destroy everybody? Or 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 are you gonna let the people that are righteous, are you gonna let them go? Are they gonna live? Peradventure, maybe there's fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? Are you gonna destroy it still, even though there's fifty righteous people? Uh, and he also says that be far from these to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous shall be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the, the judge of all the earth do right? It's not okay for you to kill the, the people that are, that are good, that are doing the right thing. And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Just for those 50. Because there's 50 in there, I won't destroy it. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I've taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes, and, and I know you shouldn't listen to me. In other words, what he's saying, Peradventure, there shall lack five of the 50 righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? In other words, if there was 45 of them, will you still destroy the city? And there's a little less, but would you still destroy There's 45, at least. 
And he said, If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure, <laughs> wait, wait, let me, let me just, let me, let me just make sure here. There shall be uh, forty found, uh, five less. So ten less of fifty, five less. Let's say there's forty. And he said, I will not destroy it for forty's sake. <laughs> he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak. Peradventure, uh, there shall thirty be found in there. And he said, I will not just do. I will not do it. If I find thirty there, I won't do it. Well, he already knew how many. <laughs> and Abraham continues, he says, and he said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak to, 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 unto the Lord. Peradventure, there should be 20. <laughs> he's really dwindling this down. Let's say there's one. At this point, he's going to this, he's, he's getting to that number. And he said, I'll not destroy it for 20's sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. Let me, let me just dwindle this down even more. And I will speak yet, but this once, peradventure. Ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And he kind of leaves it there. God just says, I, you know what? This is, this is stupid. We can do this all day. <laughs> so I'm going to go and do what I need to do. And you just, you go and do what you need to do. And he sends the angels in case you don't know. He destroys the city. But he gets Abraham's family out, which is Lot and his wife. His wife turns around, turns into a pillar of salt because he was, they were told not to look back. That's a whole different story for a different day. I'm not going to get into that. But the point is, God destroyed that city because there was not anybody that was righteous, only that family. That was it. During the time of Noah, things were extremely bad. Genesis 6, 5. This is, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is all anybody thought about. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. God was so upset that he even created human beings because of how how disgusting and how despicable we were, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I, made, I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God saw Noah and his family and thought, okay, there's still hope. <laughs> there's just a glimmer of hope, so I'm not going to kill everybody off. I'm going to save the earth. Once again, one, one family was all it took to, to save mankind, even during the time of Judges, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Because everyone did what they thought was right, famine and war and trials of all different kinds came to God's children because God could not meet with them. God could not look upon them. God could not give them what they wanted. You could take several other accounts as well during the time of Noah with uh, Nineveh. I mean, uh, during the time of Jonah with, with Nineveh. Did I say Noah? During the time of Jonah with Nineveh, God saved that city because they repented at Jonah's preaching. But during those times, they all had one thing in common. Every single one of these stories had one thing in common. God found one family of just people in Sodom and Gomorrah and got them to safety, but the city had to be destroyed. Uh, during the time of Noah, he found favor in Noah's family. That was it. So he saved that one family alone. During the time of Judges, they finally turn back to the Lord and God visits them once again. During the time of Nineveh, uh, Jonah preaches to them and they take it seriously, saving their city. But during the last days, not a single person will turn to the Lord. God will find favor in nobody's eyes. Everybody will be against him. There won't be a single person that will turn to him. No one will even try. Even though God proves himself before them and continuously gives them chance after chance, they simply won't do it. 
They would rather die in destruction than believe in the Lord. They would rather spend an eternity in suffering and pain and, 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 and hope that it doesn't exist rather than take the obvious signs of God's wrath to repent. And it's because of this that there will be none left on this earth. Man is not getting less sinful, only more. As time comes by, we become more and more accepting to sin and that lifestyle, and it should not be a surprise to us that the Bible is being proven right every single second that passes on this earth. Any questions, comments, concerns, or complaints? (laughs) 